Our Father, we heard from you this morning, and we saw your greatness and your victory over your enemies. And Father, we come to you again this evening, longing to hear from you. And so we turn now to your word, and we ask that you would be gracious to us. Give us ears to hear and a heart to receive your word this evening. Help us to see you in all of your glory, and please transform us by the renewing of our minds. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was once a young man named Edmund. He was bright and successful. At a young age, he was entrusted by a business owner to lead his company. And to top it all off, he was engaged to marry his sweetheart, Mercedes. But he was betrayed. Two men were especially jealous of him, one of his business success, and the other was jealous of his bride-to-be. So they conspired to get him in trouble. They accused him of treason against their country, and when Edmund was brought before the public official, justice was perverted, and that official sealed all the wrongs done against Edmund and had him thrown in prison. This is, of course the fictional story of Edmund Dantes in The Count of Monte Cristo. And the rest of that novel by Alexander Dumas is what we might call a revenge story. But the character of Edmund, for him, he is seeking justice for all of the wrongs done against him and his family and the people that he loves. The way that the book is written, Edmund, is a pretty closed book, but there is a particularly revealing scene when Edmund is witnessing a public execution. There are two criminals who are going to be executed for their crimes, and Edmund is witnessing this, and he turns to one of his companions, and he says, death may be a torture, but it is not an expiation. Now, that's a really interesting word to use because expiation means the removal of guilt or sin. And so he's saying that death does not remove the guilt and satisfy justice. And his companion is surprised and asks him to explain. And so he goes on and he says, listen, And the author says that deep hatred mounted to his face as the blood would to the face of any other. Edmund says, if a man had by unheard of and excruciating tortures destroyed your father, your mother, your mistress, in a word, one of those beings who, when they are torn from you, leave a desolation, a wound that never closes in your breast. Do you think that the reparation that society gives you sufficient by causing the knife of the guillotine to pass between the base of the occiput, which is the base of the head, and the trapezal muscles of the murderer, because he who has caused us years of moral sufferings undergoes a few moments of physical pain. And his friend replies, yes, I know that human justice is insufficient to console us. She can give blood in return for blood. That is all. The problem of evil is a very personal problem. There are people in this world and in this room 
who have experienced various forms of evil that leave lasting scars, or as Edmund puts it, a wound that never closes. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the evil in this world? How do you deal with the wrongs that have been done to you? For Edmund, in the Count of Monte Cristo, those injustices propelled him into a a total war of revenge against his enemies. But as a Christian, how do you deal with that? How can we walk with God, having experienced those things in an evil world? Psalm 5 helps us with this question. And so I'd invite you to turn there, if you're using the Bible in the pew, on page 409. Even though the Psalms aren't a narrative in a literary sense, they do have a deliberate arrangement. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but even our own hymn books have an order to them. So our Majesty Hymnal is arranged by topic with uh, the theme written above the hymn number. And so, generally speaking, you can find the Christmas songs in numbers 193 to 229. On the other hand, The hymns modern and ancients arranged alphabetically. So, it begins with a debtor to mercy and ends with you are the Lord. So there's an order to those. The book of Psalms was a hymn book for Israel. And it was the hymn book of the church for much of our history. And just like our hymn books, the Psalms have a structure to them. And so I want to draw our attention to a couple of those structural elements to help prepare us for what's going on in Psalm 5. First, the Psalms have an emphasis on the king and the law, and especially how the king relates to the law. Psalm 1 describes the blessed man as the man who meditates on God's law day and night. And then Psalm 2 is all about the king, where the kings of the earth are warned that they must submit to God's king in Jerusalem. And then Psalms 3 and 4 and 5, which we're going to look at tonight, are King David's request for help from his surrounding enemies. And they're wicked because they've rejected God's law and God's king. David's need for help points us to another important theme in the Psalms, namely that there are two kinds of people in this world, the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 1 lays out this theme very clearly. The wicked will be judged and the righteous will be blessed. Psalm 2 applies this at scale to the nations. Those who submit to the king will be blessed. Those who reject God's king will be judged. And then that judgment, again, the the righteous and the wicked becomes personal, again, in Psalms 3, 4, and 5. So with those two structural things in mind, let's read Psalm 5. So the chief musician upon Nehilot, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. 
the Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee, for thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. The main question that this text presents to us is how can we commune with God in an evil world? And the psalm gives us three answers to this question. Answer number one is that we can take our concerns to God in prayer. We see this in the first three verses. Often when we're in danger, we cry out for help. So if you're in a survival situation, you have to prioritize making some kind of distress signal with a fire or a flare or whatever you can. If you see a search party, you're going to wave your arms and shout at them to get their attention. We teach our children from a young age that in an emergency, you call 911. The Bible teaches us that our basic response to danger should be prayer. That is how Jesus processed his trouble, and it is how the Psalms teach us to handle our trouble. So David here is sending out an SOS, a distress signal to the Lord. Notice David's sense of urgency in this prayer. In verses 1 and 2, he asks God in the opening lines to give ear to my words, consider my meditation, hearken unto the voice of my cry. There's a sense of urgency and seriousness to David's prayer. You can also hear the desperation of his circumstances. What is translated here as meditation could be translated as groaning there in verse 1. The word literally has the idea of, of muttering or murmuring, which in this context probably conveys the idea of troubled thoughts rather than orderly thoughts. He also calls his prayer a cry in verse 2. The preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Weeping has a voice, a melting, plaintive tone, an ear-piercing shrillness which reaches the very heart of God. And crying had a voice, a soul-moving eloquence. Coming from our heart, it reaches God's heart. Did you know you can cry in prayer? David is desperate. He is troubled, and he is crying out to God. We also get a sense of David's trouble, that it occupies his attention day and night. See there at the beginning of verse 3, <clears throat> that he talks about calling out to God in the morning. Now, we're in the midst 
of psalms that are alternating between the morning and the evening. In Psalm chapter 3, verse 5, David talks of the Lord sustaining him in the morning. And then Psalm 4 talks about David, he's sleeping by God's protection. In Psalm 4, verse 8. And now in Psalm 5, David is praying early in the morning. And in Psalm 6, he says that he floods his bed with tears at night. And so we see this alternating pattern between morning and evening, between day and night. And it gives us this sense that evil was an ever-present problem for David. And he sought God's face in the morning and in the evening, during the day and night. So we see that evil is a very personal problem for David. This is no small thing to him. But by turning to God in the way that he does, we see that David trusts that God is a personal comfort to him, and that God will answer him. We see the the personal comfort that David receives in verse 2. He addresses God as my king and my God. God is not just the king of the universe. He's not just the king of kings over all the kings of the earth, but he is David's own king. David is saying something that we sang this morning. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Evil is very near and present for David, but his God is a personal king to him and a personal comfort and help. David also trusts that God will answer his call for help. God is not going to fly by this flare that David is sending up. We see this hope in David's sense of expectation. Do you see how he ended verse 3? He says that he looks up. He watches. Now, it's been a long time since I played golf, but I remember at least this, that after I hit the ball, I usually watched to see where it landed. I cared about what happened after I hit the ball. Prayer, without watching for the answer, is like hitting a golf ball and then walking away. So, David shoots his prayer and then watches for God's answer. Christians, let us learn afresh to go to God when faced with troubles. We each have unique knee-jerk reactions to the problems that we face. Some of us try to fix it. Some of us might deny it. Some of us might become discouraged and lose hope. But the Psalms teach us to go to God. So what weighs on your heart this evening? Have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it only once? We should pray to God as often as we are burdened by our troubles. So go to him tonight in prayer. And when you wake up in the morning, if your heart is still burdened, pray about it again. Take your troubles to God in prayer and then watch expectantly to see how he will answer you. Turning to God to prayer is the first response that we should have to trouble. But David, in this psalm, he leads us beyond that knee-jerk reaction. And as we move through the psalm, we find a second answer to our question, how will we commune with God in an evil world. 
What will we do with those wrongs done against us? And he shows us the second answer, that we can trust God's judgment. We can trust God's judgment. It's important to understand as we watch this psalm go along here, as we listen to it, that there's a connection between David's prayer to God for help and David's understanding of God's justice. Much of this psalm talks about God's judgment, as you can see in verses 4 through 6, and then again in verses 9 and 10. David rehearses the stark reality about God's posture towards sinners. He says with increasing intensity, there in verse 4, God takes no pleasure in the wicked. And then in verse 5, that God hates workers of iniquity. And then in verse 6, that God abhors the bloody and deceitful man. It's hard to imagine how David could have been any more clear. And the consequences are just as severe. Again in verse 4, evil will not dwell with God. In verse 5, the foolish will not stand. And in verse 6, the Lord will destroy those that speak leasing or liars. It is clear that the doctrine of the wrath of God and hell is not an optional part of Christianity. It's not on the fringes of the Bible. A few years back, a pastor named Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins in which he argued that a truly loving God wouldn't send anyone to hell. I came across an editorial recently by an author named Colin Hansen who suggested that maybe Rob Bell won that argument for all practical purposes. And he made that suggestion based on a new Barna report that revealed that half of professing Christians aged 20 to 34, half of them think it's wrong to evangelize. And a quarter of professing Christians aged 35 to 53 think it's wrong to evangelize. And it's one in five for everyone older than that. Maybe one of the reasons that we don't evangelize, Hansen suggests, is that we don't really believe in hell. Passages like Psalm 5 force us to ask ourselves if we really live as if God angers, God's anger burns against the wicked. So God's wrath, it, it matters for evangelism. We have to acknowledge that. But in the flow of this psalm, we see that we also can't give up this doctrine because God's judgment is actually one of the reasons that David looks to God for help. It is an important basis of his prayer. That's why he begins verse 4 with that word, that grounding word. He's giving a reason. He says, for. He roots his hope for help in God's just judgment against sin. Christian, God's justice ought to be a comfort for his people. God's justice is actually a comfort for us. In the midst of an evil world, we long for justice. We long for wrongs to be made right. But we also seem to have a sense that our human attempts at justice will fall short. We are encouraged throughout the Bible to entrust judgment to God. 
Paul tells the Christians in Rome, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. In Revelation 6.10, the martyrs cry out to God for justice. They say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And 1 Peter 2.23 tells us that even Jesus, when he was reviled, reviled not again when he suffered. He threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So rather than recoil from the doctrine of God's wrath, we should understand it to be a comfort for us and a help to us. God will make things right. And his judgments against evildoers will be a comfort to God's people. So very practically, this is what enables us to hold our tongues from lashing out against somebody that hurts us. This is what enables us to let go of our bitterness and unforgiveness. If you're struggling with these things, reflect on God's justice. That first Peter passage tells us that's, that's how Jesus did it. When people were mocking him trusted in God's judgment and that's what stayed his tongue God's justice will satisfy us but if we're honest with ourselves and if we're honest with the Bible we know that there's some tension when we ask God for justice and the tension comes because the Bible tells us that each one of us we are the evildoers spoken of here in Psalm 5. We read it earlier in Romans chapter 3, where Paul actually quotes this psalm and says, that's us, that's everybody. Here's what he says in Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, or grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. That's Psalm 5, 9. So we would be wrong to conclude that the problem of evil is out there and merely external, that it's those wicked people. No, the Bible tells us that the problem is not only external, but internal. And David knows this. David says in Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. We use that psalm to confess our sins this morning. David knows he is a worker of iniquity. He has done transgressions. To resolve that, that tension, we have to keep going in Psalm 5 and look to the third answer to our question, how can we commune with God in the midst of an evil world? We could put a sharper point on the question and even ask, how can I commune with God with the evil inside me? And to answer that question, we have to look at the center of the psalm. David, he, he's intentionally structured this psalm to draw our attention to the middle with mirroring sections on either side. And he also draws our attention to the middle 
with this contrasting transition at the beginning of verse 7. But as for me. So David's drawing our eyes here. This is a focus that he wants us to see. And it's here that we find the final answer to how we commune with God in an evil world. And that final answer is that we can treasure God's mercy. We see this in verses 7 and 8, and also in 11 and 12. David says there's only one way that he has access into God's presence, and it's not because he's such a great guy. One commentator says, Though evil persons are excluded from God's presence because of their sin, it does not follow that the psalmist is, is admitted by virtue of his own goodness. The psalmist's entrance into God's house would be only based upon the abundance of your loving kindness. That is to say, it was only God's grace and covenant love toward his people which made entrance into his presence possible. Now this word here, mercy, in verse 7, is a precious and loaded word in Scripture. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And for some of you, hesed is literally your middle name. But figuratively, we could say that hesed is God's middle name. It's a very important and rich Bible word. And much of that richness comes from Exodus 34, which we read at the beginning of the service. And in that story, Moses asked God, show me your glory. And we read that when the Lord's presence passed by, he reveals his glory with words. And this word hesed is right there, twice. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness. That's the word hesed. And truth. Keeping mercy. That's the word hesed again. For thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So those words mercy, or that word, uh, those words goodness and mercy are the Hebrew word hesed. And they reveal God's glorious character. They reveal what's beautiful about God. Sometimes that word is translated as steadfast love. And it especially communicates God's covenant love, that God would be faithful to a faithless people. And that's all the more powerful when we consider that Exodus 34 comes right after the golden calf. And the people rejected God, but God would be faithful to them because of his goodness, because of his hesed, because of his mercy. And that's the word that David says, that's what gives me access to God. His mercy. Friend, if you died today and met the Lord, what do you think would give you access to his presence? If he asked you why he should admit you, what would you say? Would you compare yourselves with others and say, well, I wasn't as bad as those people? Or would you point to your own efforts and say, well, I tried to be a pretty good person. I tried to keep the Ten Commandments. Or maybe you'd say, well, you should let me in because I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm not anything else. Friend, God will not admit you for any of those reasons. There's only one way to have access to God, and that is through his mercy and steadfast love that he shows us through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to the riddle that is spun throughout the Old Testament. Namely, how can God be a just God and pardon sinners? How can he do that? How can he be holy and forgiving? The answer is Jesus. 
Jesus was perfectly pure and pleasing to God, but he took the punishment for our sin when he died on the cross. And then he rose again, affirming that that work is done and that God accepted that sacrifice. Now, you have but to receive Christ by faith. Trust in him with all of your life and leaving your sins behind, turning away from them. Forsake your sin and treasure Christ. This is how we can dwell with God. Will you trust him today? God gives abundant mercy. Verse 7 says, there's a multitude of his mercy. That means even more for us. So look back at the psalm. We see that we receive the mercy of God's guidance in verse 8. God guides us through a wicked world. David asks in verse 8 that God would guide him because of mine enemies. So there's probably two threats here. One is that we might be tempted to return evil for evil. So this is the temptation that Edmund Dantes indulged in the Count of Monte Cristo. And it's how we are tempted to respond when we're wrong. Somebody wrongs us, we want to get them back. So there's that threat when we experience evil. But the other threat is that our enemy might actually lead us astray. Did you notice how often the speech of the evil person is mentioned in this psalm? The foolish, in verse 5, could be translated as boasters. This is a sin of their mouth. It's the word hallelujah without the Yah, the Yahweh. So they're praising themselves rather than praising God. Verse 6 references those who speak leasing, which simply means lying. And the same verse references the deceitful. And in verse 9, their words aren't faithful and they flatter. So it's their speech that's a danger. That, that kind of speech isn't harmless. And so in verse 9, David, David even says that their throat, their mouth, the way they're speaking, it's a grave. This is why our friends matter, by the way. Because we listen to our friends. And we should cultivate our counselors carefully. And so I pray often for my boys that they would have godly Christian friends. And I hope that for our young people, that they would have good friends. I hope that for all of us. So who do you spend your time with? Who do you listen to? Do you have good, godly friends that give you good counsel? When I pray for you, I often pray that you have good friends in this church that would help you in your walk with God. In the midst of a wicked world, we pray with David that God would give us guidance and protect us. We pray as Jesus taught that God would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God also gives us the mercy of joy. In verse 11, it, it bubbles over with joy that God mentions here three times. Uh, David mentions three times the joy that God's people find in him. So here at the end of the psalm is the mirror image of the agony that the psalm began with. The end of the story for God's people will always and ultimately be joy. And even now, joy can pierce the darkness of our sorrow. Jesus was a man of sorrows but never was a man happier than he. Hebrews tells us that he could even endure the shame of the cross because of the joy that was on the other side. Paul also could rejoice in the midst of sorrow. So friend, if you're looking for joy, look to Christ. Don't look to your circumstances for joy. Don't look to your career or your health or your bank account. Those who put their trust in him 
will rejoice. Those who treasure his mercy will find joy in him. And finally, we find the mercy of protection in verses 11 and 12. God blesses his people with protection. I love these verses. It says, we will shout for joy because thou defendest them. And God will surround his people like a shield. The psalm ends. When I was a kid, my dad would take the occasional business or hunting or fishing trip. And at those times, my mom would bring in the big dogs. Literally, we had a big dog. A German shepherd, Elkhound Mix. He was an imposing sight, and to add to his mystique, he was named Samson. Samson usually stayed outside in the doghouse, but when my dad was away, my mom brought him in, and we all felt safer for having him in the house. Brothers and sisters, God is a better guard than Samson. God himself defends you and covers you with a shield. That doesn't mean we're going to be exempt from pain and suffering and sorrow in this world, but it does mean that nothing can separate us from his love and nothing can thwart his good plans and promises for our life. There was once a young boy named James who had two caring parents and a brother. One night, his parents went out to a community event, leaving the two boys home alone. Shortly after they left, an intruder broke into the home and held the two boys at gunpoint. He was after anything valuable in the home. And the boys had heard news reports of repeated crimes in the area, and now they found themselves face to face with the perpetrator. The threat had become personal. The boys tried to escape twice, and they finally succeeded, and they ran down to the community center where their parents were. The police came, eventually, they caught the man. That night left an indelible mark on James, who would then pursue a career in law enforcement. That is the story of James Comey, who would go on to become the FBI director. His experience of injustice and his brush with death launched him into the pursuit of justice. Sooner or later, evil will not be something that's out there, but it will be a personal experience. How will you handle it? For James Comey, he responded by pursuing justice in law enforcement, which is a good and noble pursuit, but it is a limited pursuit. We will each do something to handle it, or fix it, or cope with it. The message of Psalm 5 is that only God can bring about ultimate, satisfying justice. We can hope in that and rest in that. But the psalm also teaches us that if God were not to also show mercy, then all of us would be doomed to that just wrath against our sin. So here's a mystery to rejoice in, friends. The mystery of the cross that God is just. He will punish sin and evil. But God is also the justifier of the one who has faith in him. That is a satisfying way to live in a world of evil. Let's pray.